Right, the UK's top ten in terms of films looks like this. At number ten, we have Tron Legacy, which is a uh, sequel to the early 80s alleged classic. <laughs> it's a sci-fi thriller. Basically, this guy gets, he's been searching for his dad all his life and in the original his dad was sucked into a computer game and kind of took 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 on the computer game like that and basically his son happens the same thing happens to his son and it's, it's essentially a remake rather than a sequel so it's not done a lot of good business. It's in 3D if, it's, if you like that sort of thing it looks really it's a really pretty looking film so it might be good visual effects but not a lot of substance. At number 9 we've got Chronicles of Narnia which is the third installment of that the installments are getting worse as they go along, unfortunately, and this uh, this is no different. And number eight, we have Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1, or Harry Potter 7A. Basically, it's it feels like half a film because you're waiting for the end, so I think it's good because it keeps, it keeps, it keeps Harry Potter fans going for another year. But I think next year, possibly watch them both together, parts one and two. I mean, it'll be a four-hour film, possibly five-hour film, but it'll be more rewarding, I feel. At number seven, we have The Next Three Days, which is the new Russell Crowe action film. Basically, his wife is uh, sent to jail for murder, and when he spends three years appealing and stuff like that, and when it gets to the stage where there's no more appeals and stuff like that, he comes up with a plan of how to break her out. Uh, but because after 9-11, America is a lot more security conscious that he has very, very limited options in terms of if he breaks her out, the whole city can shut down within seconds, well, within minutes. So it's all about it, how he plans it all together. It also stars Liam Neeson and Elizabeth Banks. It looks like a good film, that. At number six, we've got Love and Other Drugs, which is the romantic comedy starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Anne Hathaway, who's been named Catwoman this week. Anne Hathaway, not Jake Gyllenhaal. That would be weird. And it's it's a it's a quirky romantic comedy. He's a quirky against my will, but that's only I can sort of think to sum it up. He's a Viagra salesman. She is she she has a secret which I can't reveal now because for want well, to spoil the film. And the way the trailers are selling this film is not what the film's about. So. Take it with a pinch of salt if you're going to see that one. At number five, we've got The Little Fockers, which is hanging in there. Basically, it's Meet the Parents 3. It's, in, it's There's no real progression in plot from the first one. Robert De Niro doesn't like Ben Stiller's character, and they've just reverted straight back to the first film, so one to avoid. I'm surprised it's still hanging in there. It's probably just because of its humorous title. At number four, we have Gulliver's Travels, which is the Jack Black, Jack Black vehicle. Um... It's sort of a twist on the cl the classic story, and he gets taken away to Lilliput, and he was a giant, and all that sort of stuff. You know that you know the usual thing, and it's it's all about how he just tries to impress the people of there and works towards them. He helps Jason Siegel's character meet the girl of his dreams, that sort of thing. So it's a bit of a twist in it. All the while, he's trying to get back to impress Amanda Peet, who is his boss. At number three, we've got 127 hours. Strange one, this one because. It's a, it's a film about and it, you do you have to you know what the plot is before you go in. The guy gets trapped in a rock against in a mount. He's like in a, a cave. He gets trapped with a rock in and He has to cut his own arm off. And basically, he has 127 hours to do it. Otherwise, he'll he'll go septic and he'll die and all that sort of nonsense. It's, I can't see what rewarding nature you get from a film like this. I haven't watched bits of it on the internet. Um, it's it's just grim, <laughs> but I, I suppose it is a good exa it's a good example of good British filmmaking directed by Danny Boyle, who did Slumdog Millionaire and Train Spotting and stuff like that. So it is a good it, technically it's a good film, but in terms of enjoyment factor, I'm not really seeing the, the thing there. At number two, we've got the Green Hornet, which is the latest superhero film starring Seth Rogen. 
basically his dad is killed and he takes up the mantle and takes on the bad guys using all his, his wealth that he's inherited and stuff like that. We'll be going to see that Tuesday night, so I'll have a better... <laughs> not that wasn't a bad review. I'll have a more in-depth review and I can tell you what's good, what's bad, and whether it's one to avoid. And number one, we've got The King's Speech. This is the Colin Firth film, which is just absolutely clean house with all the award ceremonies. He's uh, he won a, he's been nominated for Golden Globes, won BAFTAs, and all. he will he will win BAFTA, should I say? Um, so that's just and that's this, it's a story of a king, a king's brother who is the king is advocates and he's forced into becoming the king and he's against his will and he's very nervous and how he overcomes speech impediment and stuff like that. And also stars Helen Bonner Carter. So that's the UK top ten. What I'm going to do is I'm going to play a quick record, um, and then we'll be back. We'll switch to the pre-recorded stuff, which me and Daniel did Tuesday night. So it'll just sort of make it'll be a sudden switch. Um, but you see, it's all there, and it's about we can start off with a cult film, which is The Wicker Man, and then we'll be review uh, be doing like this week's new reviews, which include films like The Black Swan and The Dilemma and things like that. From the heart of the district, this is Lionheart Radio. Well, you've joined us here on the pre-record part of the show because we couldn't all be in the studio on this Saturday. I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> I, think he's, I think he's hung over from the night before. Yeah, uh, quite possibly. No, what else do you do after you've finished work? <laughs> I think you go to bed and dream about the next day because we all love our jobs. Yes, indeed we do. Work makes us strong. But shall we explain to the listeners why this is being pre-recorded this week? Yeah, because uh, Daniel is out of the studio, so we're, we're in this brand shiny new studio, mm -hmm. and we are playing with all the new shiny gadgets, really, aren't we? Yeah, and um, yeah, basically I'm working on Saturday, what well, is now Saturday morning, so uh, I couldn't be here this week, and rather than just be the lazy thing and take another week off, I thought it was only fair to kind of put something pre-recorded out there so we can do the usual stuff and uh, keep our listeners happy. True, and if you have to listen to this, if you want to actually go and find Daniel in flesh, you can go to a certain supermarket in Annick <laughs> and look for him. He'll be the one wearing the Daniel badge. <laughs> we can't say the name of the supermarket, can we? No, we can't. But no, we should say. No but we should say other Daniels are available. Uh, yes, no matter how. But not quite as good. No matter how <laughs> how hard we cooperate with our listeners, we can't name the supermarket, unfortunately. No, but anyway, um, rough idea of what's coming up. There'll be uh, a review of this week's cult film, which is the the Wicker Man, the original version of the Wicker Man. Definitely original. And we'll be talking about new releases, including Black Swan, The Dilemma, and I Spit on Your Grave. Yeah, there's a whole host of uh, new releases, so we're gonna. There's ones we haven't got time to mention now, but we'll get to later on. Lionheart Radio. Okay then, it's time for the cult film of the week, which is... The Wicker Man. The original version of The Wicker Man, not the appalling Nicolas Cage remake directed by Neil LeBute, which came out uh, four years ago. Yeah. And of which we will never speak again. We might mention, we might give it a few digs later on. A few, <laughs> yeah. well, kick it while it's down, a few punches to the ribs. <laughs> Which is the least it deserves. So, for, for those who actually care, background information about the film. It's a British horror thriller which was branded famously the Citizen Kane of horror movies by a French magazine called Cinema Fantastique. Uh, directed by first-time director Robin Hardy, who, uh, based upon a screenplay by Anthony Schaffer, who, uh, direct, who uh, wrote Sleuth. Did you see Sleuth? I haven't seen Sleuth, no. The original version, um, again, it's, it's a bit depressing to kind of quote all these remakes no it's michael kane laurence olivier uh, michael kane is um a hairdresser who wants to marry laurence olivier's wife who is from whom he is estranged laurence olivier is a crime writer um as they play a series of kind of mind games to kind of get one over on each other mm -hmm. it's essentially a class struggle and we'll come back a little bit to that later because it's very interesting based loosely on a novel called the ritual by david pinner but Schaffer himself kind of uh, said there wasn't much of it in it 
first released in 1973, early 1974, on a double bill with Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, which is now widely, which is largely considered the superior film, although I would disagree. Yeah, it's very controversial as well for reasons which you can't really get into this Saturday morning. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, go on Wikipedia and type Don't Look Now and there's a little thing halfway down the page which you'll go, oh, blimey. <laughs> yes, it, it, it's, there are a couple of tough moments in Don't Look Now, although, like I say, it, it is it kind of gets swamped by its artiness in the first half hour. So anyway, The Wicker Man, the plot synopsis is Edward Woodward, in his best-known and finest performance, plays Sergeant Neil Howey, who is a devoutly Christian police officer. He's called to the island of Summer Isle, the fictional island of Summer Isle, we should say, which is off the west coast of Scotland, to investigate the disappearance of a young girl called Rowan Morrison. While he's there, he discovers that the island's inhabitants are all pagan worshippers, and that's pagan in inverted commas for reasons <laughs> that will become clear, and there is a strange cult going on which is being overseen by Lord Summer Isle, played by the evergreen Sir Christopher Lee. Uh, and in his struggle to kind of find the girl and you know, interviewing all these people, getting conflicting information, he discovers that she, and possibly he, could be in more danger than they realise. Yes. And I think we should, that it's good to leave it on that sort of cliffhanger because there'll be many people who haven't seen the film and don't know the big twist at the end. Right, I shall keep my mouth shut then. Yeah, until I tell you you can speak. Okay. <laughs> So, I think we've set it up very nicely, now into the, the meat and drink of it, so to speak. Any film which is going to get branded the Citizen Kane of horror films, it's got a hard act to follow. But in the case of The Wicker Man, it's slightly, it's a slightly odd term of description because it's not really a horror film at all. Did you get the sense of when we were kind of doing some background research on this? I don't, I don't think, it, I wouldn't describe it as a horror. I think maybe it got the horror tag because of some of its stars, Chris mm -hmm. Renley, obviously. Yes. Um, it was more of just a, a standard melodrama sort of thing and just fairly a bit of a thriller, a bit of a mystery. Yeah. There wasn't really any gore or uh, just things that there wasn't this, that, that what, you'd, what you'd associate with a standard horror film. Yeah, or well, certainly what you'd associate with contemporary horror and we'll come on to that in a bit more yeah. detail when we talk about I Spit on Your Grave. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, there are a small horror connections, partly because of its relationship with Don't Look Now, but also in terms of its um, mystery background, there is the whole tradition of the giallo uh, area of horror, which is horror thrillers, which is largely comes out of Italy and you know, the work of Dario Argento and so forth. But like you say, The Wicker Man is, is very different in style. There was a great quote from um, the assistant producer of it when he was being interviewed for the, uh, the Burnt Offering documentary by Mark Kermode, saying that it was, it was written as a melodrama, staged as a musical, and won a prize for science fiction. So it, there is a, a kind of all sorts of genres going on in the mix, and it's very difficult to pin down what it is. So, on the surface, the first kind of 10, 15 minutes or so, when you're kind of setting up, when the film's setting up the character of, of, of Sergeant Howie and his, his younger colleagues, it's very much staged in a very naturalistic way, like an episode of, you know, Zed Cars or Dixon of Doc Green, those old kind of police series, where the policeman is very much the moral pillar of the community. It's like there's a, an only scene in the first five minutes when they're walking along and they see a graffiti of Jesus Saves on it, and the policeman says, Ah, Sergeant Howie, excuse the Scottish accent, that's a message for the youth of today. And Sergeant Howe goes, yes, indeed, but it's still breaking the law, so clean it off. And it, so it's that kind of thing. But the film to which The Wicker Man owes the biggest debt from a structural point of view, there's a Paul and Pressburger film called I Know Where I'm Going. Have you seen that? I haven't seen that. Uh, 
it's Wendy Hiller and, um, I can't remember his name, but basically Wendy Hiller is playing this kind of young up-and-coming socialite woman who's travelling to this, um, this fictional part of Scotland, and they shot it on the Isle of Mull, yeah. to marry the, the rich but elusive boss of a chemicals industry. And when she gets there, she discovers that the, uh, the um, island of Kiloran, which she's trying to get to, has been surrounded by fogs, completely cut off, and the film is about her kind of being stranded there and developing a relationship with the locals and eventually falling in love with, falling in love with one of them. It's a very kind of interesting... I mean, it, it, it's a very interesting romantic drama which kind of draws on lots of fantasy elements so there's kind of curses involved and local customs and so forth. And The Wicker Man, it's that same sort of idea of someone going off to the wilds of Scotland, being completely out of their depth and being trapped there by these kind of strange n natural or supernatural forces which are beyond their control. Mm -hmm. That's not to say, however, that just because there's a similarity that The Wicker Man is... its mystery doesn't work. Because, if anything... Because it's much more a sort of a folky horror in terms of it being a straightforward thriller, the mystery has to be compelling because it can't just invoke you know, the fantastical supernatural elements. In order for you to believe in the twist, for instance, there has to be you know, a real reason. And it is primarily a film about the clash between the, you know, the cultures of Christianity and paganism in inverted commas. And the reason we use inverted commas is it's not really paganism at all. <laughs> I mean, it looks like it. Yeah, I mean, neither <laughs> of us are practicing pagans, we should say that, so we can't speak firsthand. Only on weekends. <laughs> <laughs> only on the weekends when I'm not here. <laughs> I have to keep him in check, listen, you know, it's the only thing that stops in these days. So, you have this central idea, which is two cultures which are completely irreconcilable, and have a, a certain kind of historical tension, to say the least, struggling to coexist in this kind of isolated place of Summer Isle. The thing, but the thing that makes the film interesting is that despite the famous imagery surrounding it, it isn't a film which tries to discredit one in favour of the other. It's not a film which says, you know, the great kind of devout puritanical Christianity embodied by Sergeant Howie is better than, you know, pagans running around with their clothes off and jumping through fire. On the other hand, it's not, even in its great finale, saying, you know, the animalistic side of man is always going to triumph and therefore a modern religion's a load of old cobblers. Mm -hmm. And the thing, I think that's what makes The Wicker Man so compelling in the sense that it's, it's taking the clash of cultures and using it as an analysis of different sides of human nature and arguing eventually that they can't um, exist without each other. The thing which kind of draws that comparison out is, like I say, it's written by Anthony Schaffer, who wrote Sleuth, and Sleuth is essentially a class struggle film, which, you know, it's the upper class is portrayed by Laurence Olivier fighting against the working class of Michael Caine, mm -hmm. um, playing tricks on each other, each getting one over, but eventually sort of coming to realise that they both are after the same thing, in the case, this relationship with the woman Marguerite, and sort of meeting in the middle, even if there is a rather twisted end to Sleuth. And it's much the same in The Wicker Man, because you have the pagan culture, which represents the kind of primal, animalistic, but ultimately superstitious side of mankind, and on the other hand, the Christian side, which is supposed to represent kind of enlightenment, and we are the keepers of all things rational, and all things pure, and all things sensible, and all things moral. Mm -hmm. And... The film essentially argues by the way that how he is tempted and the obstacles that he comes across in trying to find this girl, that actually if you try and separate one from the other it just doesn't work and the pagan side, or the, the kind of primal animalistic side just keeps bubbling to the surface whether you like it or not. Mm -hmm. um, the thing which the film is also most famous for is 
the amount of ill will towards it in terms of its production and what happens with its release and you were wanting to pick up on a few of those things yeah it was it seems like it was fairly cursed it was um it only really got its distribution at the end through wo word of mouth it was one of those sorts of films and mm -hmm. i see that review scene calling it the citizen kane of horror and it just kind of snowballed from there but um i think what happened is was it uh, what's the name of the not blue line that's a taxi company um <laughs> Lots Br of British Line, is British it? Line, that's it. Yes. Yeah. British Line, they, they got a new uh, head of the company, Michael Dealey, and Chris Valley went to view the film after it was finished uh, and went to see Michael Dealey afterwards. Uh, and he said, um, firstly, a really funny quote, he just goes, I got the judge of um, Michael Dealey because when I walked in the room with my wife, he didn't stand up. And he goes, That told me all I need to know about his character. <laughs> and then shortly afterwards, Michael Dealey told him that he thought The Wicker Man was one of the ten of one of ten worst films of all time <laughs> so and that was the guy who kind of pushed it so you kind of knew it was dead in the water yeah i mean because michael dealey is a very famous producer he you know went on to do the deer hunter mm -hmm. which we still have our differences about but also produced blade runner and the italian job so he's a guy who knows this british cinema mm -hmm. but in i think in the original version of the wicker man when they were looking it's it's the thing about the wicker man is it's so odd it's such a kind of strange mixture of genres and so different tone how do you sell it and I think that's the problem that he was facing. Yeah, I think you just, I think that's maybe why people just lump it under the horror category because it's quite hard to sum it up on yeah. anything else. It's like um, modern day, if you have a film which doesn't quite work, you say, well, it's broadly a comedy, mm -hmm. even if it's laugh out loud in a bad way. So you have all these kind of weird um, stories and legends that go around it. I mean, there were comments like um, Robin Hardy, the director, wasn't there when they shot the climactic final scene. The associate producer again said it was a film made in spite of Robin Hardy rather mm -hmm. than directed by him because he was constantly falling out with the producer and so forth there was a story that edward woodward told which has been validated and then debunked mm -hmm. on both sides where they were there was a scene where they're driving along one of the roads or going along in a cart and because they had such a low budget somebody had to get these trees which were in kind of pots at the side of the road pick one of them up from behind and run along to make it look as if they were alongside they were going down a long road of trees and edward woodward said i remember it happening mm -hmm. and you interview respective members so robin hardy said no that's nonsense we didn't have the money to do that anyway christopher lee said it happened i'm absolutely certain <laughs> then you have all the stuff about the legal action Britt eklund's in the film um and at that point she was still quite a kind of well-considered star she wasn't just falling into the sex kid and stuff because she don't get carter yeah which is in which again it, it's a sort of cipher role but she is but she is pretty good in it and there is a scene where she's playing the landlord's daughter and she tempts sergeant howie by singing a seductive song and then dancing around in her room which is next door to his naked and banging on the wall mm. and the producer and robin hardy basically kind of shot all the scenes with brett ecton you know in the buff in close-up singing the song and incidentally her voice is dubbed mm. because she couldn't do a scottish accent without sounding a little bit swedish <laughs> so then they well, a, a voice for the whole film or just the song the whole voice it's really? the, yeah there is a very slight mismatch in the oh. dub if you notice it but it is a very odd scottish accent that they've dubbed her with get russell crowe to do it <laughs> um so then they it's, it, so they what they did was they shot all her kind of close-up and her singing in inverted commas said goodbye and then the next minute they would get this kind of in Brett Eklund's words a big butted body doubling to shoot all the scenes from afar and so it does look like a similar comparison would be if you've seen Caligula the Tinto Brass film with Malcolm McDowell in where basically they shot the film which itself has a lot of hardcore stuff in it and again we're coming back to the word stuff as opposed to anything <laughs> else and then the producer Bob Guccione who was the owner of 
Penthouse magazine basically got a load of his babes back on set and shot even more stuff <laughs> to make it look like it was just a porn film with nothing else going on. So what we have is a very odd, almost unsellable film, which is difficult to pigeonhole, difficult to sell, has all sorts of, has pretty much everyone involved fighting against each other for either control of it or just discovering what the truth is. And I think that often the kind of the cult of the Wicker Man, in terms of its its kind of legacy and its image and so forth, obscures the, the kind of the substance of the film. Because mm -hmm. when you were watching the documentary that you were you were talking about, did you get the sense that there was so much focus on what happened on the set as opposed to what the film was actually about? Oh yeah, it was more about overcoming the the hardships. I mean, for example, the film is shot in the winter, despite it being revolving around the May Day protest. So it may not protest May Day. Yes. <laughs> so that's just the riots. Just people throwing fire extinguishers off buildings. Yeah, okay. uh, about the May Day celebration, uh, should I say? And but rather than shoot in the springtime, they shot in October, November, <laughs> and you can see that the last scene as well. They all look absolutely freezing. <laughs> And there's a, there was a little thing on that document, a little trick that they did that all the actors had a bit of ice in that when they were shooting outside scenes, the actors had a bit of ice in their mouth so that it stopped their breath coming out, you know, you can see your breath and it's all steamy and stuff like that, which is sort little things like that. Yeah. Just, there was a great story. I mean, my, it's about, it's a story by Michael Gambon, who is known for making these sort of things up, but he was asked by Cubby Broccoli, um, I think after George Lazenby had stopped, to be the next Bond, and he said, I can't because I've got, you know, no teeth, massive jowl, mm. big paunch. He said, well, so is Sean Connery. And he said, well, how do you do it? Well, what we do is we put ice bags on Sean Connery's chest before the take and just take them off so he looks really buff. <laughs> you know, it's a simple, same trick. I think the other thing we should talk about in terms of The Wicker Man is its music. I mean, you described it as a kind of like a melodrama or a musical. Yeah. And there are... The odd thing about that is, like a lot of things on The Wicker Man, that was almost an afterthought, because mm. uh, they, they filmed half of, the, half of the stuff, including a lot of the location shots, and then Robert, Robin Hardy kind of turned around to everyone and said, Right, now we're going to turn this into a musical. They were like, what? Okay. So they got in a guy called Paul Giovanni, who basically reworked a lot of old English folk songs, wrote a couple of new pieces, and basically set the tone for the film. Like, you have, for instance, the odd um, moment of lots of naked virgins dancing around a stone circle, jumping over a fire, which supposedly make them pregnant, or at least make them, you know, fertile. But the most interesting use of music, of course, comes in the finale. Now, if you don't want to know the ending of The Wicker Man, I suggest you turn off your radio for a couple of minutes, because we will be discussing it and it, no, there's no way you can talk about the wicker man without discussing the ending because it's the best and most important bit yeah because if you want these people to listen going they've described these characters but they haven't described the character called the wicker man is it a superhero no it's a great <laughs> big wicker man <laughs> yes which they then put edward woodward in at the end and set on fire because the twist is that the missing girl hasn't gone missing at all and this was all a plot to lure him to the island to sacrifice him so that their crops would return and yes. you know the, the the world would be at peace again yeah what was it he represented the, um because he was his character was a virgin he represented purity and because he was policeman he represented the, like the law and the law of the land and so yeah so they thought he was the ideal sacrifice yeah i mean th those sorts of explanationary lines do kind of drift a little bit towards like the silly stuff in the omen you know saying mm -hmm. like creating armies on either shore well that must mean the common market so, okay <laughs> not too sure about that crowbar it in but the moment in the last 10 minutes when the wicker man does properly become a horror film is when you you're kind of edward woodward is being led over the top of this hill and the knowledge that he's going to be sacrificed and you actually see the wicker man which is something like a hundred feet high yeah. wicker statue with cages in with animals actually caged in yeah. and he's put in and they set it on fire and the musical side of it is 
down at the base of the tree, at the wicker, of the wicker man, sorry, Christopher Lee leads them in a full-blown song and dance swaying version of Somebody's a-coming in, which is a, a folk song for Catchley Harvest. Meanwhile, Edward Woodward is in the cage at the heart of the wicker man, screaming out the lines of Psalm 23, and it's a really transcendent, harrowing experience. Yeah, because you, you watch it going... He's got to get up. Surely there must. And you go. Oh, there must be a ladder down the back. Oh, sorry, it's the word. <laughs> and then that, that shot at the end where the head falls off the wicker man, and yes. then it shows the sunset, and you just think, oh, blimey. <laughs> yeah. He didn't get out of that. <laughs> yeah. And that is the thing that hints at the kind of the overall message of the wicker man, because a lot of people have written about it, saying it's you no, know, it promotes pagan culture, or it's about how. Um, 70s Christianity was completely stuffy and out of date, but actually, it's it, the the actual killing of Edward Woodward, the sacrifice of him, is essentially a restaging of the crucifixion. Mm. Because on the one hand, it does appear that the devil incarnate, as embodied by Christopher Lee, has won, and he's dancing around celebrating his victory while Jesus, in inverted commas, is burning on the cross. <laughs> but on the other hand, as Edward Woodward's um, character explains, if the crops fail again after he's been sacrificed, Lord Summerisle is going to be next. So that while Edward Woodward's character isn't exactly going to come down off the cross and come back to life, all that Christopher Lee has kind of worked up for will eventually be destroyed. And the whole thing of the sunset is, on the one hand, it's ambiguous because the sun hasn't completely gone down. So is it, is it the sun setting on Christianity or is it the sun setting on the pagan cult that's on the island? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you can read as much into the film as you like, and I think the film allows you to. It isn't perfect. No, there are little moments with the sun, like when Christopher Lee is... You know, entertaining his um, love, which looks like a German kind of opera singer by playing on the piano, and he does sing very well, but very oddly. Yes. Um, and there are little moments, particularly at the start, where you're, it looks, like I say, a little bit televisual, but as a tonal piece, as a piece about a culture clash, as a piece about, you know, civilizations and belief systems locking horns and neither really coming out on top, it is flawless, and it is one of the best British horror films of the 1970s, or thriller films, whatever you want to call it. Definitely. I was just saying, a couple of things which I'll, I'll, I'll drop in, just little anecdotes which I've sort of picked up in the documentary. Yeah, I'm sorry, I've talked a bit too much. That's right, yeah, about the, um, about the, the production. Uh, if you're on YouTube, I, I recommend you type Wicker Man, um, The Enigma. Type that in, and there's a good little three-part documentary there. I'm sure mm -hmm. it's probably the DVD extra, but if you want it for free, that's where it is. Um, one of them was that, because they say the Wicker Man's full of animals, there, this might be a bit graphic, but in the top head bit of the Wicker Man, there was a goat, and because of all the shouting and the fire, and they, none of the animals were hurt. And it's real fire. Yeah, I mean, we're... Edward Woodward could easily have died when yeah. they were doing that. Uh, the goat got very scared and, shall we say, relieved himself, and yes. on to Edward Woodward. He expressed was... his fear in a liquid <laughs> form. There was no way of getting out, so yeah, Edward Woodward had to act through that. And there was another thing, because of the sheer size of it, it drew, it drew attention from the locals, and it drew attention from the RSPCA when the animals were going to go in yeah and they said uh, they were they were wanting to shut down because there was rumors circling they were going to burn them alive and stuff and one of the producers didn't really help things when he wrote a letter to the RSPCA, PCA, RSPCA saying yes no animals will be burned only cute and cuddly ones will be burned <laughs> and he's like you're not helping <laughs> yeah I mean the, the issue of animal cruelty in films is, is an odd one because generally speaking we don't condone it but mm -hmm. there are a number of instances in films where not that it's justified, but you kind of wonder whether or not they knew. I mean, the classic example, of course, is the killing of the cow at the end of Apocalypse Now. Mm -hmm. And there's all sorts of stories about, did Francis Ford Coppola order them to do it? Was it actually taking place and they just happened to be there and shot it? Was it relevant? Is it art? Is it exploitation? And I, it's very difficult to get into that debate. But I think, I think in the case of The Wicker Man, because you don't 
see any of the stuff actually happening to the animals. I yeah. think it's all right. And I think the, the actual, because you're focusing so much on the human characters, it doesn't, it doesn't certainly gratuitously condone the pain of the animals. Definitely. And I suppose we, we should mention it and give it a little passing comment. If anyone's at the DVD store tonight and they say, Wicker Man, oh, they didn't mention Nicholas Cage was in it. That's because it was remade in 2006. Yes. Daniel is grimacing across from me. It is kind of proof why Hollywood is kind of in a bit of a state in that they're just greenlighting a lot of remakes because they know that it's a tried and tested story. The Wicker Man has a few different tweaks to the Nicolas Cage story, but essentially it proves that you don't need to remake it because the main selling point is all in the original. It's yes. all there. It's bonkers, but I suppose it's, it was fairly cheap to make and it made its money back, so... Yes, it was a product of its time, and you, there are certain films where you can remake the story absolutely shot for shot, mm -hmm. but, or even you know, mood for mood, but it doesn't capture... I mean, you look at the rubbish remakes like... Gus Van Sant's shot-for-shot remaking of Psycho, which is completely pointless. Yeah. <laughs> um, right down to the fact, you know, why would you cast Vince Vaughn as Norman Bates? <laughs> we'll get the Vince Vaughn later. Yes, we we'll will. We've got a few kicks lined up for him. But yeah, if you avoid the Nicolas Cage remake, but if you're on YouTube after I watch the document, which I told you about, type in Nick Cage, oh my god, the bees. <laughs> <laughs> There's a really, really funny... We shouldn't laugh because he's kind of unfortunate, but if, you want, if you're not a fan of Nicolas Cage and you want to oh see... Oh my him, god, the bees! Not the bees! Not the bees! <laughs> it's, it's funny, it's 13 seconds long and it's hilarious, so that's Nicolas Cage, oh my god, the bees. Yes. <laughs> Google that. So, Wicker Man, absolutely recommended. It, is, it isn't quite a masterpiece, it isn't quite the Citizen Kane of horror movies, but it's a really great piece of British filmmaking and, um, yeah, go and see it as soon as you can if you haven't already. Definitely. And next week's cult film will be? Slightly lighter, albeit only slightly, with Nell and I. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from, from Anik. Anik. This is Lionheart Radio. Okay, it's now time to look at this week's new releases at the cinema. We've been through the top ten, or I've been through the top ten earlier on, and... And done a very fine job of it. Yeah, having not, not seen what's in the top ten, I've got to say, oh, that film was bad, ooh, that was good, and the number one... Yes, that remake of The Exorcist was appalling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we've, we've covered The Wicker Man, so now let's look ahead. If you've gone to cinema this weekend, we're going to tell you what to see and what to avoid. Uh, there's one clear one to avoid, but we shall get to that later. Yes. Let's kick things off with a re-release of an old classic, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah, it's being re-released after the recent passing of Blake Edwards, who, um, of course, is probably more famous for doing uh, the Pink Panther films. He also did a very interesting um, comedy called The Party with Peter Sellers. Did you see that? I haven't seen that one. No. Um, it's one where Peter Sellers is, um, it's slightly questionable because he's playing an Indian bit part actor who gets struck off, you know, put on the blacklist of Hollywood after basically blowing up a film set, but they accidentally put him on the guest list for a rich party and he goes there and you know, it's, it's a kind of slapstick farce and right. it's, it's, it's pretty good. Um, so based, Breakfast at Tiffany's based on a Truman Capote novel starring Audrey Hepburn and George Peppard who is probably more famous now for doing Hannibal in the original version of the 80s. To my shame I would go, that's Hannibal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird not seeing him with a cigar and silvery hair because he knows. Um, so the story is Peppard plays a lonely struggling writer who's clearly standing in for Capote himself who falls in love with socialite Holly Golightly, playing by Hepburn, probably her most famous role, would you say that? It's the most iconic, definitely. Yes. It's sort of the, thing where... With the beehive hat and the cigar holder and stuff. Yeah, if you go to shops like Ikea and stuff like that, there's always prints and sort of... It can sum up people's houses and things like that. Yeah. Right. So, 
what happens is that no, he falls in love with her. They became they become friends in that socialite way of they're not really friends, but they're people who hang out and do lots of goofy stuff and hang out with rich people. Mm. Um, and a lot of it is, I miss it's not it either is semi autobiographical or it could be seen as semi autobiographical because of course Capote, after he completed In Cold Blood, basically spent the rest of his life partying and getting drunk and you know didn't compete a major work again, and. The film does the whole kind of wild socialite New York lifestyle very well. I mean, it's it's a much more kind of restrained style than the Pink Panther films, where they are in. Well, certainly, when you get to the Pink Panther strikes again, they are very broad slapstick. Um, and I think, in terms of all of um, Blake Edwards' body of work, it's his. It's one of his best films. I actually really like that comedy he did called Ten, which launched Dudley Moore's Hollywood career. Mm -hmm. It's the famous one of, you know, the, the man and the woman running towards each other in slow motion along the beach. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a very well-made film. So it's centrally about people in a lifestyle which is built around money and fashion, finding out that love actually matters in the midst of this. I mean, there's a comparison between Pygmalion to some extent, you know, the original version of Pygmalion from the 30s, not the kind of slightly... Um, NAF remake with, you know, because it was remade as My Fair Lady with Audrey Hepburn and it didn't quite work as well. Yeah. And there is another film from a similar era, I think it came from the year before, called The Millionaires, which with Peter Sellers and Sophia Loren, which is basically the sex in the city of its day, because that's about a rich stuck-up millionaires who says, I want to marry someone. Mm. So she finds Peter Sellers as a benevolent doctor who doesn't care about money, and she basically tries to convince him that money is everything. It's a really <laughs> rubbish film. <laughs> Um, there are a couple of faults with the film that, well, at least bits of it that haven't dated very well. There is a supporting role by Mickey Rooney as a Japanese man, who, if you've seen the trailer, he comes out of the sauna with big false teeth. And you sort of go, no, take it away, not interested. Yes. <laughs> but I think it is genuinely charming, and it's a very stylish kind of early 60s romantic drama, and the sort of film you couldn't make anymore. Definitely, yeah. Oh, moving on from that one, we're going to take a bit of a shift to the horror section. The horror. The, the horror. horror. I, yes. think we want to, what, I think we'll start with I Spit on Your Grave, which I can't help but want to say in a Spanish accent, I Spit on Your Grave. Well, yeah, what I'll do is, I'll, um, if I may uh, offer an alternative, I'm going to do, there's three horror films out this week, and I'll do the best to the worst, because none of them are especially good, but no, see. Yeah, sounds good. Um, first off is The Ward, which is the new film by John Carpenter, whose last film was Ghosts of Mars ten years ago, which was Total Pants. It's the one with Ice Cube as this um, scenery-chewing convict on Mars, and they discover this mine shaft with ghosts in, and they have to defeat it by basically machine-gunning them. Yes. And it doesn't work, <laughs> and it's... it's total pants. So, Amber Heard, who is most famous for her, her role in All the Boys Love, Mandy Lane. Yep. Uh, did you see that? I haven't seen about it. Seen it. There's a lot of the modern day horrors that I just don't have any passing interest yeah. in. I just sort of go, nah, I'll, yeah. I'll leave it. I mean, All the Boys Love, Mandy Lane, it's a kind of grimy nuts and bolts slasher, so it's, it's okay, but it's nothing remarkable. She was most recently in the remake of The Stepfather, where she basically was being paid to wander around in her pants all the time. So, she's a young woman, she is put in a mental institution, hence the title The Ward. Um, she and her fellow inmates become convinced that there is a ghost on the prowl, and women start disappearing. Now, if you see the trailer for The Ward, it's very much playing to the Shutter Island audience, in that there's lots of, kind of, dark shadows, lots of jump cuts with people going, ah! And there is a lot of screaming in dark corridors. I mean, it's, it is definitely an old-fashioned ghost story, and Carpenter doesn't have good form with ghosts. I mean, if you've seen the original version of The Fog, in which it's, you know, the fog comes in and ghostly pirates wanting revenge wander through, and it never really worked, because yeah. they had to go back and reshoot a third of it to make it more gory, and it just you know, never hung together. I think it's something to see if you're a Carpenter fan, 
which I am, but otherwise you, you're probably okay skipping it. I would say if you, we, we reviewed, um, They Live as yes. a cult film a few weeks ago. I think, well, well, would be before Christmas, so I'd say that would be a better one to check out. Yeah, check that out on DVD if you haven't already. Um, then there's My Soul to Take, which is the new film from Wes Craven, who of course made A Nightmare on Elm Street and uh, Last House on the Left. Very good American horror filmmaker. See, My Soul to Take sounds like it would be a good, like, title for a romantic comedy. Oh, My Soul to Take. Like, no, it's about death. <laughs> well, let me put it this way. If it had been a romantic comedy, it might be slightly more bearable. So, so like I say, this has been kicked around America quite a lot when it was released a couple of months ago, and Craven has not been on form a lot recently. And, I mean, the, the story is there's a group of teenagers living in Riverton, which was once home to the Riverton Ripper. Um, it's 16 years after his death, the twist being they were all born on the night that he was killed, and... More children are now disappearing, so possibly he's come back and he's revenging from beyond the grave. Now, oh, they always come back, don't they? <laughs> um, if you've seen any of the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels, you know you've seen this a lot before. I mean, there are a whole host of films about supernatural vengeance from beyond the grave, not just the original version of Nightmare on Elm Street, but also John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, which is about the devil possessing people by squirting green liquid into their mouths. Or, more famously, um, the character of Bob in David Lynch's Twin Peaks. There's that fantastic end sequence in Twin Peaks where um, Carl McLaughlin smashes his head against the mirror, and on the other, in the reflection of the mirror, you see the psychopathic Bob staring back at him, just going, "How's any? How's any?" And you know he's going to kill again. So, oh, it's a fantastic ending. This is just depressing retrograde nonsense. It's like the 70s and 80s didn't happen and it is just a man with a knife chasing teenagers through the woods in nothing much. And if you can't spot who the killer is after about 10 seconds of the trailer, you're really not trying. Yeah, shame on you. But compared to the remake of I Spit on Your Grave, it is one of the best films of the year. Yeah, we're gonna have to be careful how we sum up the plot of this, but uh, <sighs> I'll, let, I'll, let you, I'll let you tackle this with, uh, with, with a care attention. So, it's a remake of the 1979 rape revenge film, which uh, kind of tells you what sort of territory we're in, so if you are squeamish or, you know, uncomfortable about talking that sort of thing, then maybe just, you know, make a cup of tea. Um, so the story of the original is a young woman who, I think in the original she's a writer, but I'm not sure, she is kidnapped by a bunch of country yokels. She's kidnapped, gang-raped, and then goes basically on the warpath to get revenge in any way possible and ends up burning them to death in some description. Uh, the original, I should state this, I mean, I'm kind of giving it more dignity than it deserves. The original is horrible. I mean, it is a really reprehensible film which, you know, which basically argues that this woman had it coming and therefore we can be as gory and as graphic as we like. I mean, it's basically like, you know the squeal like a pig scene in Deliverance? Yeah, I knew we'd come back to this. <laughs> well, in this case, it's a legitimate comparison because the thing about the rape sequence in that where Ned Beatty is made to squeal mm -hmm. is that it's done in a wide shot so it, all the kind of the sounds and all the effects and yeah. stuff and what actually is going on is implied. Even if you're seeing it in yeah. that long shot, you don't see anything in inverted commas that's that makes the, it seem That's the best type of horror by a mile. Where you don't see it and you hear the sounds and you've got to... All you've got to let your mind completely mess you up. That's yeah, the it's stuff. exactly the thing with Alien. You don't see the monster so you just project onto the thing and then your projections catch up with reality when you mm. see it. But in this... So the, we, we now have the remake which basically follows the same plot to a T, you know, it's the same kind of pulchritudinous woman who gets kidnapped, bad stuff happens and then she goes on the warpath. The difference is it's made with slightly more money and slightly more efficiently, but it's still every bit as reprehensible in the sense that you have this woman who does look like she's wandered out of a lingerie ad, mm -hmm. so, oh, and the film does make you think, 
yes, she had it coming for kind of wandering around with not much on and looking beautiful. And then it basically says, well, that means we can go around and kill a lot of people. And I'm sorry, it's just not acceptable. Yeah, not on any level. No. I, I suppose we had the remake of Last House on the Left a few years ago, so I suppose this was... I must have thought, we've got away with that one, because that's a fairly... <clears throat> plot. Yes. And it's kind of just thought, yeah, we'll just do that one as well. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those films which makes you feel ill just talking about it. And the fact that there's now more than one version makes you feel completely misanthropic. And in fact, I'm feeling like I should throw up just by talking about the it. The annoying thing is, because it's probably not made for, you say it's made for more money, but not uh, by normal stands, not like Inception money. So it will make its money back, which means yes. you'll be subjected to more of I it. I spit on your grave too. Yeah, and because it's such a horrible subject matter and the kind of, oh, we, we got by it, they'll think, can we, can we push this a little bit further? That's it. No, stop. Yes. Just make a nice Batman film. <laughs> or somebody, somebody put a finger and fin make another Superman film. Well, they are. Something nice. Christopher Nolan's producing it, yes. but it's being directed by Zack Snyder, so we're all doomed. Yes, let's, so, have, let's have something nice. Out of the three horror films, go and see The Ward if you're a Carpenter fan. Otherwise, go and see something a bit nicer. Lionheart Radio. And now we come on to the final review part. There's about five films to get through. I think we should, we should we'll rattle through them. We'll get them done, no problem. Yeah, no the problem. first one, it's Oscar season approaches, and I think this one is going to be up there with a shout for yes, a lot of the awards. Absolutely. We, we talked about it a little bit last week when we were giving our kind of recommendations of what we're looking forward to in the year, but uh, we may as well do it again. Black Swan is the new film from Darren Aronofsky, who is most famous for Requiem for a Dream and The Wrestler, both of which are very interesting films. The Requiem for a Dream is very tough. Have you, have you seen The Wrestler? No, I haven't. It's yeah, that's I don't know. It, it it was it was a watchable film. I wouldn't say I got enjoyment out of it, if you know what I mean. Yes, I can see why it was a. You had Mickey Rourke going through the full range of things, so I can see why it got him the, the plots, but. Best film contender? I'm not I sure. I've so. never reviewed a film you haven't seen. Anyway, so new film by Darren Aronofsky, uh, starring Natalie Portman, whom I've always had a problem with in the past. I mean, where do you stand on her? I think she's been given a lot of bad parts and a lot of bad dialogue, hence I'm looking at you, George Lucas. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, the Star Wars prequels aren't really her fault. I mean, yeah. there's that line in Attack of the Clones in it, let us go away, Anakin, when it was nothing but our love. <laughs> <laughs> You're breaking my heart. There is heart. also that, yes, <laughs> said in a very kind of girly American accent, You're breaking my heart, shut up, please! <laughs> Just get off the screen and kill him so we can all go home. No, but anyway, I mean, she has been in a lot of bad stuff, but in this, she's actually pretty good, certainly from what we've seen. Uh, the story is she's a ballerina called Nina, who is vying for a part in a production of Swan Lake, with her director being Vincent Cassel, who was most famously in uh, Gaspar Noé's Irreversible. He's a very good French actor. Great actor, yeah. yeah. Um, she develops a rivalry with another actress, played by Mila Kunis, and then the film turns into this kind of jaw-dropping exploration of you know, obsession and darkness and ambition and delusion and hallucinations. And I mean, it was described famously by Mark Kermit as Dario Argento on crack. And if you've seen Dario Argento's Suspiria, in which a ballet dancer comes to study in Germany and watches loads of people get killed in beautiful ways, mm. then that is... We're talking about something which is completely out of control in the best possible way. The central comparison, however, is a film called The Red Shoes by Paolo Pressburger, which um, I presume you've seen bits of, if you're, at least you're familiar with. Familiar with it, yeah. You know the famous shot of the, the Red Shoes where it's her running down the spiral staircase? Mm -hmm. Martin Scorsese puts in a lot of his films because he loves it. Um, and the thing with The Red Shoes is it's not a film about ballet. It's a film about jealousy and the conflict between love and art and no principles and morality set against the backdrop of a ballet, uh, ballet school and no competitions. And... 
there are there is full on stuff in black in Norris, not black narcissus that's another Alan Pressburger film in black swan you have these wild hallucinations where people have feathers starting to grow over their body you have dream sequences you have Barbara Hershey as the you know the repressive mother saying where's my special little girl yeah. and it does look like a film which if you're not a hundred percent in the mood to watch it, you'll just go out thinking, "Well, that was a bit stupid." Yeah, there's lots of there's lots of mirrors used throughout the film, and lots yes. of things like lots of mirrors about Twin Peaks before we look up, and it's like, "Oh, there's suddenly this weird." Yes, there are there are there are mirror tricks. There are split personalities. There is sapphic sex, which you know mm. we should mention. But it's one of those things where occasionally you get a film which is so completely mind blowing and so full on that even if it has its flaws, you kind of forgive them. And I think Black Swan could be every bit as forgivable mm. I think you should go and see it because Aronofsky's a very interesting filmmaker and it's you know Portman's best performance in years Aronofsky remember he's the one that did The Fountain yes have you did. seen that one <sighs> bits of it that's it sounds like a really good interesting film I'm, I'm going to have to watch it one day yes. but it, it got panned yeah it, it was it, basically it, Hugh Jackman and the quest for eternal life with Rachel Weisz or Weiss how do you pronounce it yeah kind of Terence Malick goes to space but not as good so we should move on um, Ned's which is non-educated delinquent to give it its full title a new film by actor writer director Peter Mullen who'd previously made the Magdalene Sisters it's a coming of age story set in 1970s Glasgow we follow a young boy played by first time actor Conor McCarran who is very good from watching clips of it um, he starts off as the star pupil there's the moment in the trailer where he kind of he's made to stand on his desk and the teacher says you are a swat mr mcgill i salute you and then we see him descending into gangland violence we see him drinking we see him smoking and basically his life going downhill yeah. and the whole film is about whether or not he's going to come through that or whether he'll stay as a gangster all his life now there have been many comparisons made with you know, a whole series of different films there are there have been people who've compared this to a clockwork orange which is a very difficult thing dangerous thing to do because a clockwork orange is a masterpiece it's one of the best films ever made it's just absolutely mesmerizing and there is a link with it because you have a young boy who's very charming and sweet and innocent on the surface but is also capable of doing really bad stuff um there's nothing like as much as the singing in the rain sequence in clockwork orange which is you know shocking the first time you watch it and funny the other times because clockwork orange is essentially a black comedy with violence the other comparison, which I think is misplaced, is with the kids, uh, with kids, the Larry Clark film, which came out in the nineties, which is a really rubbish film. Yes, that's you no know, really twenty-four hours of um, drunken, sex-fueled Paris uh, love from lots of teenagers, and it basically felt like you. It basically felt like a pornography one, where you basically think, "Oh, look at all these people aren't they lectures on the evil? Yeah, let's have a look at it. Let's have a look at it." Yeah, and I don't it, trust Larry it, Clark it at was, all. It was controversial for controversial sake, I thought. And yeah. I think the fact it got so much negative publicity, I think the director was probably sat in the tone going, going "Get in, yeah." And it's written by Harmony Corinne, who's a completely up himself. Most recently, made a film called Trash Humpers, which we won't talk about. <laughs> The thing I think it's closest to is um, if you if you if you've seen the Noel Clark film Kidulthood, in which he wrote, yeah. directed, and starred in, yep. and you put that with the kind of visual sensibility of Gregory's Girl, you know, coming of age in late seventies, mm. early eighties, combine the two, and you've pretty much got what Ned's is in the sense that you have the violent and the gritty elements of Kidulthood, but also the kind of the romanticization of parts of seventies. It's not Glasgow in Gregory's Girl, but it's it's similar kind of period. Yeah. And I think that it's an interesting period film. I like the central performance very much. It isn't anything especially remarkable, but it's an, a low-budget British film, and they should be encouraged, so I'd suggest you go and see it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. The next one is... Morning Glory, a new comedy from the writer of The Devil Wears Prada from the director of Notting Hill. So, pretty good ground. The story is, Amy, Amy McAdams is a TV producer. She's fired from uh, the news programme on a... On a 
American TV station, and she is given, a, in a last-ditch effort to make her career, she takes the job of a producer on Daybreak, which in this, in the world of this movie, is the lowest-rated breakfast show on American television. How ironic. <laughs> yes. And it's one of the things that the film, they couldn't have possibly predicted that, but that's kind of given the film a leg up, because a lot of people will go and see Morning Glory to see, oh, it's an, oh that's not Adrian Childs. Who knows? So, she decides to revitalise the show by bringing back legendary but retired news anchor played by Harrison Ford, you know, Mr. Grumpy Returns, yes. pairing him with the equally, you know, gerontocratic, not gerontocratic, geriatric Diane Keaton, who, of course, was Woody Allen's muse for quite some time, and basically all manner of things go wrong. Now, to some extent, we have seen a lot of this before. I mean, there's the, gr the two great satires of TV news, which is Network from the 1970s, you know, Peter Finch doing the Mad as Hell speech, which actually won him an Oscar, I think. Mm. And then in the 80s, we had broadcast news with the famous line of, I say it here and it comes out there. And people thought, kind I, of rewriting the truth on the date, on the second basis. I thought you were going to mention Anchorman there. Well, there are links with Anchorman as well. Burgundy? <laughs> yes, although Harrison Ford doesn't walk around with a preposterous moustache and his trousers down. Um... Now, here's the thing. So there are little bits of predictability in it. But there are things to see before, but I would be lying if I said I didn't laugh at the trailer. I mean, Harrison Ford is surprisingly good at doing comedy. Yeah. Um, if you, I mean, not if you've seen, obviously, you know, the Indiana Jones films, particularly um, Last Crusade, when it's the whole double act between him and Sean Connery, and he is very good at doing deadpan stuff. And I like Diane Keaton quite a lot. I mean, I was watching, the f like, uh, the last half hour of the first Wife Club again when it was on Film 4, other channels are available, the other day. And she is a very kind of interesting screen presence. I mean, it's not going to be anything remarkable. Again, it's, it's very inconsistent in the way that a lot of rom-coms are. But you know what? It's perfectly fine. It's good to see Harrison Ford kind of back on a little bit of form after Indiana Jones 4. Yeah. I saw that recently and I, th I didn't hate it as much as you thought I would. I'd, well, I, I, I don't, I, the bits with Indiana Jones are kind of like, but just like, it's, it's the Shia LaBeouf factor. He is there. He is the charisma vacuum. And Ray Winston just... Ugh, Jonesy! Just, yeah, it's like, no, stop. I think yeah. there's talk of them making a fifth one. Uh, God knows what that's going to involve. <laughs> yeah, let's not talk up George Lucas more than he deserves. So yeah, it's it's perfectly fine. And um, no, of all the comedies out there, it's probably the best one at the moment. Which brings us on to the dilemma. Yes, the dilemma. Should you see? Do you it want to start this off because you've you've answer, got a chip on your shoulder with this? Yeah, it's the latest Vince Vaughn film uh, with starring Kevin Smith, who was the guy of uh, I now pronounce you Larry and Chuck. Not Kevin Smith. You. Not Kevin Smith, I'm getting mixed You're up. thinking of Kevin James. Kevin Not James. Kevin Sorry. Smith, Kevin, no, no. Yeah, Kevin the Smith. clerk's guy. Yes. Well, that might have made it a better film. Yes, yeah, so basically, they're two guys, they work together, they're working on this big presentation. Vince Vaughan finds out that Kevin James, um, yes. uh, his, his partner's having an affair with Channing, Channing Tatum, mm -hmm. that block of granite with no personality. <laughs> <laughs> he looks good, but he can't act like a lot of people. Um... And basically, it's his dilemma. Does he tell his friend, as a friend should, or does he not say anything to keep so he can keep working and then both achieve, achieve career success? I have a real problem with that because another real problem with a lot of films where affairs are mentioned and portrayed on screen, and it's always seen like ah, they're not that bad. And there's not. I've never. I don't know if you've got any example. I'd love to hear if you have. Of, if anyone listening and texting, if you've got any examples of films where it's done properly and they portray the full gamut of emotions coming with affairs rather than just go. Oh, his wife's, having, his wife's having an affair. Never mind, we need to do this presentation. And that's what really wound well, me up about this film. The one thing that springs to mind, I mean, it, it's not um, an example of... It depends 
on the kind of genders involved. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a, a great film called Savage Grace, which has a sequence in it where Julianne Moore discovers her husband has been cheating on her. Because she, she meets him at the airport um, to pick him up, and he and his um, new squeeze get off the plane, and she basically runs after them, calling him everything under a sun and talking mm-hmm. about, you know, does he take, does, do you take it up the insert expletive <laughs> here? But then it does it, the reason that scene works very well is she kind of goes through this blistering tirade where basically ends up by saying, you're a little too old for this. She kind of struts off and then she goes outside the airport and basically has a nervous breakdown. Yeah. And the whole of the rest of the film is about her actually turning to her son, quite literally, to make that pain go away. And that's a very interesting film. Yeah, because what tends to happen is the films, like, Kevin James would find out his wife's having an affair and go, oh, here, and then eventually they'll get back together. He'll forgive her. And that just really, you know, is this, like... People. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem I have with this is directed by Ron Howard, who has been, I think, ever since The Da Vinci Code, he's almost forgotten how to make a film. And yeah. if you've seen... He like, knows how to he, make money, but not a good film. Yeah, I mean, he did make that documentary called In the Shadow of the Moon, which is quite interesting, but that took that didn't get a very wide release. Mm-hmm. Um, the trailer of this has its moments, in the sense, for the first 30 seconds, you kind of think, well, it's all right. I mean, Vince Vaughn can be pretty good if you've seen Swingers or Dodgeball, in which he's perfectly fine because he's been reined in. But then there's a squirm-inducing joke about second cousins at the end. And it's, it's almost like The World's Greatest Dad, that film with Robin Williams. It can't decide whether it wants to be a kind of broad comedy or something much more kind of dark and edgy. And in the end, it's yeah. just a big fat lump of nothing. Yeah, it did get it created a lot of controversy in America because they used their, uh, because of its homophobic trailer, the use of the word yeah. gay in a negative connotation. And it, it didn't have, it didn't start off well. So there's a few people gunning for it and that. I'm one of them. Yeah, so, I mean, like I say, Ron Howard doesn't need any more money. If we give him money from this, he might be convinced to make that new Dan Brown book into a film, and we don't need any more stuff to bore us. So I've read that book. It is a long, long book, and it will make a longer film. <laughs> It'll feel like yes. a lifetime. More <laughs> scenes of Tom, not Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks running around with a bad haircut explaining the plot. Just go back to make, working with Russell Crowe, because you were really good in The Beautiful Mind and Cinderella Man. Exactly. Um, one last thing to mention, Ride, Rise, Roar, which is a documentary come concert film about David Byrne on his latest solo tour, which was entered into the uh, New York Documentary Film Festival. Um, I'm quite a David Byrne fan, and I'm a big fan of Jonathan Demme's film, Stop Making Sense. Are you into Talking Heads at all? Yeah, big fan of Talking Heads, yeah. Good. Um, it's the sort of thing when we were little, but my parents had the cassette, and since then, you know, Yeah, abs- absolutely. I mean, there was the comment made about David Byrne by Tina Weymouth, who played bass in Talking heads after the band split up saying you know are you ever going to get back together and she says no because david is incapable of returning friendship uh which is no as backhanded a compliment as you can get yes Um, that cuts very much to the core (laughs) yeah so in terms of the film i mean it's on the one hand it's nice to see david Byrne back on screen because he is a very charismatic artist albeit in that slightly you know shrunken borderline autistic way on the other hand it has to compete with stop making sense and it's not stop making sense so i think it's probably worth seeing if you're a david byrne fan but otherwise go and watch the Jonathan demi film again particularly um that sequence um naive melody where he's dancing with a lamp which is really great right well thank you very much daniel and i think we'll end with what is the film of the week black swan Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.